Well, praise God. If you're visiting with us today, <clears throat> if, you've, if you've only been a few times, or if this is your first Sunday, we want to welcome you to Central Virginia Assembly of God Church. Uh, normally, I'll start out with an opening text. I'm, I'm going to be moving around the scripture today, so I'm not opening up with a text, but I think the eyes of the world are on one thing today. And uh, I know I've, I've been keeping up with what's going on in Israel. Two weeks ago, they were attacked viciously and unprovoked by Islamic terrorists that murder, raped, and just devastated that area. Now, when they did that, I watched as the, Palest as the, uh, the Muslim world took to the streets cheering and celebrating and calling it a great victory and rejoicing over the death of children and babies and, and elderly and just innocent people. They're just trying to go live life, you know. And, and I thought, what, what kind of people would rejoice over that kind of thing? You know, I just, I can't imagine evil on that level, the hardness of people's heart, you know. And so naturally Israel should and did strike back. You know, and because of that, there's, the war is terrible, all right? And there's, there's always casualties in war, unintended targets. Um, uh, a rocket hit a hospital. They immediately blamed Israel for it. Both the Pentagon and all the investigation has shown that it was actually a Hamas rocket that was fired off course and hit, didn't hit the hospital, hit the parking lot. But there was a lot of people that died. I don't see anybody in the non-Muslim world taking to the street and rejoicing over that. that that's, that's just the height of evil. You know, and, and immediately they call for a ceasefire and they begin to condemn what Israel was doing. And I thought, where, where does America stand on this? And where should America stand? And I was reminded on December the 7th, 1941, a day that will go on in infamy. When Pearl Harbor was struck by the Japanese, America struck back because she should and she did. And she didn't stop until the imperial power of J Japan was brought to her knees. And it was a tough battle. In fact, Jeannie and I watched a whole documentary on how the naval and the, the aviation actually won that war because we weren't ready for that. We weren't a match for them in the air or on the sea. If it hadn't been for the USS Enterprise, which was a, 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 an aircraft carrier, because they sunk every aircraft carrier that we had but the Enterprise, and they damaged her to the point that they thought they had sunk her. And she went back to port. They patched her up. She came back. Only this time she came back with their deck loaded with Hellcat airplanes, which was far superior to the Japanese Zero. Up until that point, we were no match for them in the air. They were knocking thousands and thousands of dive bombers, uh, torpedo planes, and fighter planes out of the air because we couldn't match them in the air. But that turned it around, and the, the naval was always, almost in every battle, was outnumbered two to one. It was very interesting. But we didn't stop until we had victory. Same thing in Germany. You know, when, when the Twin Towers came down, nobody was going to tell America that we couldn't strike back. And so Israel struck back, and they, they, they should have, and they did. And they're going to continue, and they made it clear, we will not stop until Hamas has been destroyed. And church, 
as bad as it is, and, and I don't know what you think about this, but they should not stop until Hamas has been destroyed. Now, I, I grieve over the loss of innocent life. There's a, there was a, Jew, a Greek Orthodox church was damaged and people were killed in Christians. You know, they, they go under the name of Christians or Greek Orthodox because a, a Hamas target was hit next door because that's what they do. They use places like that as a shield. They use human shields. Israel has done everything to try to get the innocent people out of there. They drop flyers and tell them to get out. We're going to strike. Hamas won't let them leave. They use them as a shield because they want the devastation. It's an evil, evil people. Now, with that said, who, who are these people? And so I went into a little more depth and research this week. And as I did, I, I started thinking about some other things and what there's a message in everything that's happening for you and I this morning. And, and I hope I can bring this out in what I, I've been just going through my, my mind this week as I've been working on this. Because throughout history, there's been great diversities of people that's moved in the region of Palestine and they've claimed it for their homeland. So who are these people? So we're going to look at a little bit of history this morning and try to connect some dots for you. First of all, there, there has never been a Palestinian people. There's been a lot of people that lived in Palestine, but there's nobody that goes under the, the, the root of being Palestinian, from, I mean, as a nationality. It is a melting pot. They're very much like America. You know, you may come from Irish background, you may come from German background or Italian, but when you come here and you intermarry with all of those, I've got all those in my background. You're an American, okay? So it's made up of Canaanites, Jebusites, Philistines. There are some people there that have Greek roots. There's actually some Jewish people there, Hebrews. There's Amorites. There's another group called the Edomites. I want you to remember that. The Edomites. Everybody say Edomites. Edomites. It's very important that we remember that. There are Nebatines there. Nebatines, they, they had no homeland at all. They were gypsies. They were wanderers. No, they have no place that they say they came from here because they came from all over uh, the Middle East. They had the Armians, which are Syriatic Christians. They've got Romans there. They've got a lot of Arabs they got Western European crusaders. When they had the crusaders there, they've got a lot of Europeans there that mixed into this melting pot of people. They've got ancient Egyptians, Hittites, Persians, Babylonians, when they come from the Babylonian captivity. They've even got people there from the Mongolian hordes. When the Mongolians under Genghis Khan and Kublai Khan almost conquered the world, some of the Mongolian people came to reside in in Gaza and the West Bank, what they call Palestine. The question is, do any of these people have a right to claim the land? Right. Do any of them have a right to claim that land? And out of all of them, there's only one group that at one time had a right to claim that land. And it was the Edomites. And we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. For the most part, the only thing that unites them as a single identifiable group is their acceptance of the Arabic culture and or the Islamic faith. And while the region was occupied by various groups, the first occupation by its rightful owner was Abraham. Abraham then handed it down to Isaac. Isaac then handed it down to Jacob. 
Jacob handed it down to his 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. It's where they get the name of their nation. Prior to this, it was called the land of Canaan. It was later vacated by its rightful owners. Now, they are there. Abraham is there with his family, with Isaac, with Jacob. But it was abandoned by Jacob, Israel, when he had to flee from the wrath of Esau, his brother, over the inheritance from their father. Then Israel returned with his four wives, with his children, and raised his children there. He resided in Canaan until the famine forced them to leave and go into Egypt. If you know the story of Joseph, Joseph was went into Egypt. He became the most powerful man in the world, second only to Pharaoh. And the famine caused them to have to go there, and they went to Egypt. The land that they owned, that they had the rights to, is now vacant. There's no Jews there. They're all in Egypt where they will stay for the next 400 years. At the end of that, they return under the leadership of Joshua. After they wandered for 40, wilderness, 40 years in the wilderness, Joshua took him back and they reclaimed their property once again. Now, you got to understand, during all this time, there are squatters coming in on their land. It's like you leaving your house and showing back up and somebody's living in your house claiming that it's theirs, all right? And you're saying, oh, no, it's not. Get out of my house. I'm moving back in, amen? So they remained there until the captivity of the Assyrians in the northern kingdom and the Babylonians of the southern kingdom. And once again, the rightful owners of Israel are not there. They were taken into Babylon and into Assyria. They returned once again under the Persian rule. The Babylonians were overthrown by the Medo-Persians. And under Darius and under Cyrus, they were sent back, and under Artaxerxes, they were sent back to rebuild their city on their land that God gave them, to rebuild the walls and to rebuild the temple of Jerusalem. They then remained there until the time of Christ. The battle over the rightful ownership has raged on for nearly 2,000 years. The Jews were scattered across the world and then brought back by God's design as prophesied in Isaiah 11, verse 11 through 12. Look at it with me. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria, Egypt, from Parthros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. He will set up a banner for the nation. Hashtag the star of David. He will set up a banner for the nation. They never had a banner, a flag before. Not this single, united all of them. And will assemble the outcast of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. It was God's design that the Jewish people come back to their homeland in Israel. It has always been there. Jerusalem has always been the eternal capital of Israel. And thank God we had a president that had enough guts to move our embassy there and declare that to the world. After God brought them back on May the 14th, 1948, the U.S. President Harry S. Truman recognized Israel as a new nation. And he fulfilled another prophecy of Isaiah 66 where he prophesied that a nation would be born in a day. Now, <clears throat> let's see how God did this and what we can take away from this message today. Father, 
We ask God this morning that you teach us through your word. God, you're always at work, Lord. And God, your plan will be, it will be accomplished, Lord. Lord, you declared that your word will not return to you void, God, but it will accomplish that which you please. Your word will prosper, God, in the thing where until you have sent it. God, we know that your word is yes and amen. And God, we know that what you said you will do. God, we've seen it happen time and time again, Lord, and the things that you have declared, they will come to pass. And Lord, today we want to make sure, oh God, that you teach us, Lord, how to align ourselves in a position, Lord, that we can reap the inheritance that you have for the body of Christ. So Lord, teach us today from your word, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, for the next few minutes, I want to just kind of do a flyover of part of the book of Genesis to kind of bring us up to uh, the point of the Edomites. Who are these people? What right did they have to the land, and why don't they have a right to it today? That's kind of where I'm headed with all of this. I'm going to fast forward the first few chapters to chapter 10. God has dealt with, he's judged the earth. The earth has been flooded. Noah's coming off the ark, and now they are at the Tower of Babel. Everybody spoke the same language, and God said that they were, there's nothing that could be withheld from them because they were in one mind and one accord. And he divided them by scattering their language. And then we go right into chapter 11, immediately after he has scattered the people. And we see him pointing out the lineage of Sham. Because when they come off the ark, there was three, three people that replenished the earth. Ham, Sham, and Japheth. Most of the people in this room are the descendants of Japheth. If you're European, I'm a descendant of Japheth. If you're from the African continent, Egypt, and some part of the Middle East, you're from, you could be the descendant of Ham through Cain. But the children of Israel are the descendant of Sham. And it starts talking about the descendants of Sham and gives the genealogy of Abraham. There was Abram. His name was Abram, later changed to Abraham. And it, it's in the Hebrew spelling. It's a breath mark that is pronounced with a like that. And he said, when I, I'm going to make you a father of many nations, your no, name will no longer be Abram, but it will be Abraham. And he breathed life into his name, literally. Sarai was the same thing. You had to be called Sarah. And he breathed life into the name of Sarah as he breathed life into her womb. So it was Abram and Sarai. There was Nahor and Milcah, his wife, who was Abram's brother. All right, there was three boys, Abraham, Nahor and Haman, they were three brothers. And uh, Haran, I'm sorry. They were three brothers. And uh, um, Nahor and Milcah were the father of Laban and Rebekah. Okay, so when Abraham sent for a bride for his son Isaac, it was actually his niece. It was Rebekah was Isaac's first cousin. So, okay. I don't think I would want to marry my first cousins, but they did that back then, you know. Haran, he was the father of Lot, who was Abraham's nephew, and he died young, leaving Lot as an orphan. So Abraham took Lot kind of as his son. That's the reason he went with him from the Ur of the Chaldees and followed him into the promised land. Then we go to Genesis chapter 12. Let's read that, verse 1. And the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country and from your family and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. 
and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That was a prophecy of Jesus Christ right there. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him, and Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Aaron. Now there's a map, I'm going to pull it up, the map of the journey of, of Abraham's journey, if you'll pull that up for me. And you'll see very, right at the very top, you'll see down at the bottom right-hand corner, you'll see Babylon, and just below that is Ur, the Ur of the Chaldees. That's where he originated from. Now, when this takes place, he has already migrated 600 miles up to the top up there at Haran. That's where he's at when this word came to him. He had followed his dad, Terah. Terah had taken Abraham, Sarah, and Lot, and they had all gone 600 miles to the northeast, and they're in Haran. All right, they've got a 400-mile journey to go southwest uh, into the land of Canaan. And that's where he's getting ready to go. Verse 5, it says, And Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions, and they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, that's up in the north, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passing through the land to the place in Shechem. Now I want you to pull up the other, well you can see Shechem in Israel down here next to the Mediterranean Sea. So that's where he comes. All right, pull up the map of the West Bank for me, if you would, please. Now, in the West Bank, he winds up in a place called Napolis. Napolis is, as you can see, the West Bank, all of that area in the West Bank is where the Palestinians argue that that's their land. They want statehood. They want that for their own. It is all Israeli territory. Because you can see Jericho there. You see Bethlehem. It's, it borders the city of Jerusalem. It all belongs to the Jews. It's never belonged to the indigenous people that was there when Abram came there. All right? It's only 26 miles to Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv is right on the the Mediterranean Sea, so it's not that wide. It's only 85 miles across the widest part of Israel. So it's a very small place we're talking about. Chapter 12, we see a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt. He returns back to Bethel. Pull the other map back up here. I don't think Bethel's on this one. Is it short on there? Bethel. So he goes, you see the red line is him. All right, he goes down to Egypt. Pharaoh kicks him out. He goes back to Bethel where he had put up an altar. And in Bethel, this time, Lot's herdsmen and Abraham's herdsmen begin to argue over where the best place is for their sheep. So Abraham tells Lot, pick the land that you want. I'll take what's left. And he casts his eyes towards Sodom. Sodom was on the Mediterranean coastline, and he wanted the fertile plains of Sodom because it was better grazing. So Abraham took what was left, and they separated. Then we're in Genesis 13. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, now he's in Bethel. I want you to get this. Lift up your eyes now and look for, from the place where you are. Look northward, look southward, look eastward, and look westward. For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants. For how long? forever 
And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. All right, chapter 14, he rescues Lot. The kings come and take Lot and his family. He goes and fights, gets them back. He meets Melchizedek. That's another whole subject. I won't get into that too much. But he meets King Mesedek, uh, Melchizedek, offers him tithes. All of that is prophetic images of Jesus. I'll just say that. It's all a prophecy. And when I say prophetic images, it's a prophecy of what Jesus will be. In fact, if you look in the book of Hebrews, it said Jesus was a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, it says he had neither mother nor father, beginning or ending of days. That doesn't mean he was a mystical being. It just meant that he had no lineage from which he drew his right to be a high priest. Because the high priest would come from the tribe of Levi, who would be Abraham's grandson that has not been born yet. So there were no high priests, but Melchizedek was a high priest before there was a high priest. It's a picture of Jesus. He was a high priest before there was a high priest on the earth. He is our high priest. Amen? All that's prophecy in an image form. Now, I want to turn your attention to Genesis chapter 15 because this is probably the most important part of the argument that's going on in Israel today. Look at it with me. Verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body will be your heir. Verse 5, then he brought him outside and said, look now towards the heavens and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the earth of the Chaldees to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it. And he said to him, bring me three, a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought him all these him, and he cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the two birds. And he took, and he, and when the vultures came down to the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said to Abram, now certainly, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers. Now, listen to this prophecy. Know certainly uh, that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will be afflicted for 400 years. What's he doing? He's prophesying the future of Abraham's offspring going into Egypt, being slaves in Egypt for 400 years before he even had a son. 
and also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterwards, they will come out with great possessions. And they did. God drowned the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. And when they left, they left with all the gold of Egypt in their possession. Verse 15, now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and you shall be buried at a great old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Verse 17, and it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On that same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your descendants, I have given this land. Now get this, from the river of Egypt, what is the river of Egypt? That's the Nile River. They've got a little sliver of land that they're fighting over. They own a whole lot more than that. All the way from the Nile River, the river of Egypt, to the great river, the river Euphrates. Pull that map back up there. I don't know if those rivers are on there or not. Yes, they are. Well, you can't see the Nile River, but the river Euphrates, that's where he, the red line, he's actually following the Euphrates River all the way up to Haran. From that river, that's all of Jordan, all of, uh, all of Israel, all of Jordan, Syria. We'll look at that in a minute. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. Then look at this, verse 19. Pull it back up on the scripture. Genesis 15, 19. I'm going to give you from the, from the Nile River to the Euphrates River, the Kenites, the Kenzites, the Kedamites. These are the people inhabiting this land now. The Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephims, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites, and the Jebusites. Right, who in the world are all these people? These people are the melting pot that's been there all this time saying it's ours. And God says, no, it's not. Psalms chapter 24 verse one says this. The earth is the Lord's and in its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it, it all belongs to God. He created it and he can give it to whomever he chooses. And he gave it to Abraham and to his descendants. Now, who are the Kenites? The Kenites are the, the son-in-laws of Moses. They dwelled at Mount Sinai. The Kenites, they, they dwelt in northern tip of, of Syria. Way to the north, you got Israel, you got Lebanon, you got Syria. All the way to the north, I'm giving that land to you. The Kenites, they, they uh, dwelt just north of Dan. The borders of Israel was referred to from Dan to Beersheba. Dan was the northern border. Beersheba was the southern border. But they owned more than that. They owned the land to the north of Dan, where the Kenites came from. The Hittites, they dwelt between the Mediterranean Sea and the Black Sea. If you go to the top northern part of the Mediterranean Sea, that section of land belonged to them. That was given to the children of Israel. The Perizzites, they, they dwelt in Shechem right there in central Israel. The Rephims in southwestern Jerusalem. The Amorites in northeastern Syria. But this is, the, this is the group, the Canaanites. I'm giving you the land of the Canaanites. Well, what, that's, they call this the land of Canaan. The Canaanites took in all of Israel, all of Gaza, all of the West Bank, all of Jordan, all of Lebanon, and the southern part of Syria. 
all belonged to the Canaanites, which God gave to Abraham. The Gergesites, it's uncertain where they came from. They were probably from central Israel, and the Jebusites came from Jerusalem. The point is this. All of that was given to Israel. There is no disputing from the word of God, the creator of the universe, the king of the universe, who that land belongs to. Later we see in Genesis 16 that Sarah gives Hagar to Abraham to have a child, and she has a child, and then Sarah despises her. So Hagar runs away, and an angel comes to her in Genesis chapter 16, verse 9. Look at it with me. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted from multitude. These are the Arab nations. All these people you see dancing in the streets celebrating the destruction of Israel are a part of this group. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are with child and you shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has heard your affliction and he shall be a wild man and his hand shall be against every man. Hashtag Islam. And every man's hand against him and he shall dwell in the presence of his brethren. All right, he shall dwell in the presence of his brethren. In other words, the offspring of this man is mingled throughout the Islamic world, and he dwells among them, all of his brethren. Man, we can sure best things up when we get in God's way, can't we? God had a plan, but this is a woman's plan. Not, this is man's plan. <laughs> it was Sarah's idea, but I'm, I'm not picking on you girls. This is the arm of the flesh, no matter how you face it. He was born of the flesh. And this is another prophetic imagery of Jesus. The first, the, that's which comes from flesh. When Adam and Eve took it, when, when, um, when they took of the tree, they tried to use the things of the earth to hide themselves. All of this is images of man's trying to play God. But Jesus was the descendant of, he, he was God, that was God's plan. Just like Isaac will be God's plan, Ishmael was man's plan. No, ladies, I, that came out before I could. I'm sorry, but ladies, I wasn't picking on you. This was man's plan. The, the girls ain't gonna hear another thing I say the rest of this sermon. Y'all mad at me? I'm not picking on you. I swear I'm not. But he dwelt among his brothers. Chapter 17 through 20, we see God's promise to Sarah to have a son. He destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. He goes over all that with, with um, these are all messages in there, but we won't have time to get into. And then Sarah gives birth to Isaac. Then Sarah sees Ishmael picking on her son. <clears throat> and so she, she tells Abram, I want her gone. I want her gone right now. Well, this breaks Abraham's heart because he, this is his firstborn son. She's one cast out, a banished. <clears throat> and so he grieves him. And then God comes to Abraham. Now, girls, you're going to like this. Genesis chapter 21, verse 12. And God said to Abraham, do not let 
it displease you in your sight because of the lad or because of the bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice. And all the women said, amen. <laughs> but this, this right here encapsulates it. For in Isaac, your seed shall be called. In other words, the inheritance of Abraham didn't go to his firstborn son. It went to the son of promise. Just like the inheritance didn't go to Adam, the first Adam, it went to the Adam of promise, Jesus. If you read in the book of 1 Corinthians, it's talking about our, our mortal bodies will take on immortality. And it said the first Adam, talking about Adam in the garden, was born of the flesh. But the second Adam, talking about Jesus Christ, was a life-giving spirit. And just like the first Adam was natural, then comes the spiritual, talks about our life will be natural like it is now. But later on, it'll be spiritual. We'll take on a glorified body. You can find that in 1 Corinthians if you want to read it. Then we get to chapter 25. I'm going to fast forward and get to my point this morning. Chapter 25 and verse 29. I don't make, think I have that. I, I need you to pull that up all the way through 34. I don't think I gave you that, Terry. I need you to add those verses in there. Genesis chapter 25, verse 29. Now, Rebecca at this point has married Isaac, and she's had twins, all right? And the Bible says that the first one was born hairy. He was real hairy, and he, was, he had red hair. And said that when he was born, the second twin took hold of his heel because they were wrestling in the womb. They were fighting before they ever even came out of the womb. And he took hold of his heel. And the first one was named Esau. And the second born twin was called Jacob. Esau was loved by his father, Isaac, because he was an outdoorsman. He was a hunter. He loved the land. Jacob I won't call him a mama's boy, but he was loved by his mother because he liked hanging out around the house and doing things with his mom. And so they were, listen, church, there, you shouldn't have favorites, all right? You should love your children equally, right? You love them different, they're all different, but you love them the same. But they had twins, and God told him, said that the older will serve the younger. That, again, is a prophetic image that the the, the covenant goes to the second born. It goes to the second Adam, to Jesus. It's a picture of Christ. Verse 29, now Jacob cooked stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was very weary. And Esau said to Jacob, please feed me with the same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore, his name was called Edom. That's where we get the name Edomites. The Edomites dwelling in Palestine today are the descendants of this man. They are the seed of Abraham. They are the seed of Isaac. They could have been and should have been a rightful heir to that land. All right? Verse 31, but Jacob said, sell me your birthright of this day. And Esau said, look, I am about to die, so what is this birthright to me? Then Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. That's bean soup. How many of you like bean soup? 
Huh? Then he ate and drank and arose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now let me explain what that's talking about. This is the English translation of the Hebrew text as given to us by the scholars of King James. All right. I was reading an article just this week that kind of got me on this path of a Hebrew linguistic. And he, took, he broke this passage down and, and he said the, the repeated verbs that are used in here, there was another verb that was in, interjected among a series of other verbs that says something different than the English translation alludes to. In other words, he didn't see himself as starving to death and I'm going to die if you don't give me something to eat. That's not what he was saying. According to the Hebrew scholar, what he was saying is the birthright is only good as long as I'm alive. After I'm dead, it's of no more benefit to me. So what good is it? It's only good for me. In other words, he could have cared less about his descendants. He only cared about the lust of his own flesh. The birthright, it says he despised it, means he didn't give it any value except what it could do for him. Now, for a bowl of soup, Esau, the father of the Edomites, who resides in Palestine today, he sold his birthright to the land. And he despised it. In other words, he counted it as no value to him. It was only good as long as he was alive. And then it was no more good to me. Because he only cared about his own appetite. That got me to thinking today. About Christianity. And how many people, how many Christians throughout history has failed to see the value of their birthright. And they have sold it cheap. And not only does it affect them, it affects their descendants after them. I started to pull up, and I, maybe I should have done it, a comparison between Jonathan Edwards and Max Dukes. I've used it before. They both lived in the same neighborhood in, in New York. They each had, uh, I forget how many descendants, about the same amount of descendants. One of them was an evangelist, a preacher, Jonathan Edwards. And out of descendants, they were godly people. One of them was the vice president of the United States. They were lawyers. They were successful people. Max Dukes, he hated preachers. He hated churches. He hated God. And out of his descendants, like 300 of them wound up in prison. And I forget how many were murderers and the prostitutes. And there wasn't, a, there wasn't a Christian in the whole bunch. Because of the choices that they made, it passed on to their descendants after them. And I just wondered how many Christians sold their birthright for cheap. It brings clarity to the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 8, verse 36. He says, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Just like Adam, when he saw the tree, all right, he saw the tree and he took of the tree, and he ate from that tree. He traded off a kingdom for a lie. What was the lie? The tree is one, it's good for food. It will make you wise. You see, we're drawn away by three things, the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. 
And we see that example here, the lust of the eye. He saw the tree. First he cast, listen, the first thing you do is cast your eyes somewhere where you shouldn't be casting your eyes. Amen? You should be looking at something, you're looking at something you shouldn't be looking at. We, Job said, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to cast it upon a young damsel. In other words, lusting after women, guys. I've made a covenant with my eyes. There's a book out called um, Every Man's Battle. How many has read that book? Every Man's Battle. I recommend it. Every Man's Battle. Because every, and listen, girls, I, I don't know a whole about, a lot about you girls, but I think it's, there's another book out called Every Woman's Battle. Am I right, Jeannie? Every woman's battle. And it talks about the issues that ladies deal with. But in every man's battle, it teaches you to bounce your eyes. Because there she comes walking down the street singing, do la do. And she's like looking fine. You know what I'm saying? Guys, come on. Don't sit there and act totally. You know what I'm talking about. And then you lock on her. The book starts out. Guy's riding down the street in his nice sports car. And there she is jogging down the street. And he's. Bang, and he runs into the car in front of him. And now he's got to go home and tell his wife how he had an accident. And on top of his lust, then he lies. Right? But he's talking in this book about bouncing your eyes. See, the lust of the eye, then the lust of the flesh. Not only do you look at it, you take hold of it. All right? A lot of times you're tempted. It's not a sin to be tempted. It's a sin to yield to that temptation. We always say a bird can fly over your head. That's one thing, but it's another thing if you let him make a nest in your hair, if you had hair, right? So the lust of the, the, lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, what you think you're going to benefit from this? See, Adam saw the tree. Then he took of the tree because he thought that it would make him wise. The serpent said, when you eat of this tree, you will be like God. Your eyes will be open. God told you not to eat of it because he knows on the day that you eat thereof, you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. It's going to make you smarter than God. And he believed the lie and he sold off a kingdom. And when he did, every unborn child to Adam came under that curse up until this present day. You and I are under that curse. We're under the old nature. That's why we have trouble lusting and having to deny our flesh and crucify our flesh because the natural part of our flesh was born under that fallen condition, passed down to us by one man's actions. By the same token, Esau, he comes in, he sees the porridge. Oh, man, that smells good. That looks good. Give me some of that. Then he takes the porridge and he sells off his birthright. And it affected every unborn child, Esau, known also as Edom, the Edomites, to this very day that his children are suffering right now in Gaza because of what he did back there. See, our consequences doesn't just affect us. This is why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 29, for the longest time I didn't understand this passage of Scripture. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body to be cast into hell. 
You see, Adam and Eve, they, they lusted. They saw it. The eye caused them to sin. They reached out and they took it. Their hand caused them to sin. And their inheritance was lost. And a world of unborn children came under that same curse. You see, Adam saw more value in the tree than in eternal life. Just like Esau, he had little appreciation for his inheritance. Esau saw the value in a bowl of soup more than the promised land. His children have suffered loss today because of that. You know, we, we need to value our inheritance, church. And I, I believe that on every level. We need to especially value the inheritance of eternal life to the point that I don't want to jeopardize that for any reason. Even, even politically speaking, I think we should value the inheritance of our nation. That's one reason I have a real problem with people disrespecting the American flag. That, I, I don't think I stand alone in that. That galls me. It does. I'm telling you, that's the reason I, I switched. I, don't, I hadn't watched the NFL football game since Kaepernick took a knee, and I doubt that I ever will. I watch NASCAR now because they still have a pastor open up the race with prayer. Come on. And they play the national anthem, and everybody stands up for the flag. I don't think it'd be a good idea to go to a NASCAR race and take a knee when that flag is flying. They might run over you with a race car on them. But on the other hand, we see Adam had no, he had no respect for his inheritance. We see Esau, he had no respect for his inheritance. But on the other hand, Jacob gave so much value to the inheritance that he was willing to deprive Esau of food just so he could get it. Not only that, but he was willing to lie and deceive his father because when it was time for the blessing... Esau had already sold the birthright, but he was still going to go in at the time of his father's death and receive the blessing, although it wasn't his anymore. He had sold it. When Rebekah heard that this father was about to give the blessing, she deceived Isaac by putting goat skins on the back of Jacob's arm so he felt like his brother because Isaac was blind. And he came in and he said, Father, I brought the porridge that you wanted. He's like, how did you find that so quick? Because Esau had gone out to shoot a deer and cook it for his dad. He's like, well, the Lord blessed me. He said, well, you have the voice of Jacob. Come closer. And he felt his arm. said, well, he feels like Esau. Come closer. And he smelled like the outdoors. He said, well, it must be Esau. And so he gave him the blessing. And then he hurries out. Later, Esau comes in. He's like, Dad, I got the porridge you wanted. He's like, who are you? He said, I'm Esau. And he said, Son, I'm, I've already given the blessing to your younger brother. And once it was given, it couldn't be taken back. And he was angry. That's why Jacob had to run away. But he wanted the blessing so bad that he would, he'd let his brother starve to death. Or he'd deceive his father. But finally, he wanted it so bad that he was willing to wrestle with God. Because one night, he's, an angel comes and he's wrestling with him. And he says, he says turn me loose for the day dawns. And he realizes this is not an angel. This is the Lord wrestling with him. It was just a playing time for Jesus, right? He's wrestling with him. Like, turn me loose. His day's coming on. He's like, no, I will not turn you loose until you bless me. 
How desperate are you for God? Church, are you listening to me this morning? How desperate are you for God? How much value did you put on your eternal soul? How important is the birthright to you? He would not let go until God blessed him. Church, your soul, your inheritance is the most valuable thing that you have. And even though you can't see it, it is a promise to those who live holy. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. I've got two more scriptures and I'm going to close. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 14 says, pursue peace with all people and holiness. Everybody say holiness. And holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springs up, cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornication or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterwards when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. In other words, when he went in and said, Dad, bless me, bless me. He's like, I can't, I can't. It's already been given to your brother, whom he had sold it to. Once he sold it, he couldn't get it back. So how valuable do we consider our inheritance today? Because if you're faithful, God will not be ashamed to be called your God. The message today is your inheritance is not of this world, church. It's unseen. And there may be things that look better. And I have seen this. I, I was sharing with somebody just, I think it was this week or last week, I was talking to somebody and I said, I said, do you, do you know how many times I have witnessed people in my lifetime who have said under the word of God with me or they said under my preaching and I see the life that they choose. And, and I, I ask myself, how could they sit under the word of God and go do that? Are they listening to what I'm saying to them? Don't they care? Because they're selling off their inheritance for that. Church, I don't believe once you're saved, you're always saved and nothing can ever change that. That is not biblical. I was taught that all my childhood. I believed it most of my life until I started studying the scripture and that is not true. You can send away the day of grace. You can give up your birthright. It's yours. It's your possession. It's waiting for you and you can sell it out for a bowl of soup, for an apple off a tree, for doing something that God has commanded you not to do. He said, if much is lies within you, live at peace with all men in holiness without which no man shall see God. Holiness is not an option. First Peter tells us, be ye holy, for God is holy. And listen, church, God is not going to command you to do something that you cannot do. That's why he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But you have to want those things. Esau didn't want it. He didn't count it of any value. So he sold it cheap. And it just, it just breaks my heart to see people sell off their inheritance for things that look better. And you may see things that look better because when we are waiting for a promise that is out there somewhere, it's hard to, 
take hold of that when you see all these other things that looks, looks so good. That soup smells so good. And you're tempted to partake of that. And in doing so, you sell off your inheritance. And it's lost. But if you remain faithful, church, we have a promise that something better is waiting for us. Amen? Somebody talks about pastors. I'm telling you, brother, being a pastor, your benefits are out of this world. Amen? Being a Christian, your benefits are out of this world. Amen. Why don't you stand with me? I'm going to read one passage of Scripture as we stand. Hebrews chapter 11. This is the great faith chapter. It starts off by saying that faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. For by it, faith, the elders obtain a good report. And it goes down in verse 8, and it says, For by faith Abraham obeyed when, we, when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out. Now, he's, he's not just looking at the land of Palestine, the land of Canaan. He went out not knowing where he was going. Church, I'm telling you that the faith walk, more times than not, you don't know where you're going. They asked me when I planted the church here, they said, give me a five-year, your five-year plan. <laughs> I said, a five-year plan? I said, I don't know what I'm going to do next week. I can't give you a five-year plan. What I didn't know is that's the answer they was waiting for. Because if they thought you was this hot shot that had it all figured out, you're not the guy to do this. Come on, we walk by faith, not by sight. A lot of times you don't have a clue what you're doing, where you're going, how you're going to get there, what you're going to do when you get there. But God does. And he will tell you when you need to know. Amen. Abraham didn't know where he was going. Verse 9, by faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. In other words, church, you're not in this alone. None of us are in this by ourselves. The same challenges you face, the guy beside you faces, the person behind you, the person, we all face the same challenges. The same temptations you face, we all face it too. All right? There, we're in this promise together. Verse 10, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. What does that tell me? This is not my home. This is not my home. Now, the things that God gave me, he gave me to be a steward of them, and I'm going to do the very best with them that I can. All right, I'm going to improve them. I'm going to make them better. It's a part of my DNA to take junk and make something good out of it. Am I right? I'll take a piece of junk, and I, somebody see it as junk. I see it as potential. It's just the way I'm built, you know, and I think God used that in the spirit realm to see people whose lives is a disaster. Instead of seeing a disaster, I see a potential. It's amazing what God can do with people. Some of the people that are standing in ministry today, when you hear their testimony, it's almost unbelievable that they could ever have been like that because you see what they have become. There's people right here in this sanctuary. We see you. We know you as you are here. But if we'd have seen you years ago, you would have been totally different. Am I right? 
there, there's one person, I'm not going to call him out, but a friend of mine said, so-and-so is going to your church. I'm like, yeah. He's like, he's had a real change in his life. I said, I know he has. I didn't know the old him, but I, from what I understand, he's had a change in life. He said, yeah. And all the people in my neighborhood's talking about it. Church, your life should be a testimony before your mouth is. And his life is a testimony. People's watching him. They see the change that is in his life. And if we knew what he was like back then, and because we know him like he is now, we're like, I, I can't believe we're talking about the same person. The guy that prayed for me to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, his name was Butch. He could quote more of the Bible than any man I ever knew. Is that true, Jeannie? That guy knew that he could quote Scripture like nobody I ever seen. But when he, he was AWOL from the Navy, he got a dishonorable discharge. He had stabbed people. He had cut people. He jumped off of a train one time running from the law. He woke up with a FBI agent with a pistol in his face. I asked him one day, I said, Butch, what was the meanest thing you ever did? He said, there was a guy. He said, well, it was a toss-up. He said, there was a guy who had a big Bible in his hand one day. He came up to me and said, Jesus loves you. He said, I hit him right in the mouth. He said, he busted his mouth, took his Bible, ripped the pages out of him, and threw it down the street. That wasn't the man I knew. He said, I beat another guy so bad one time that he, uh, he was almost unconscious. I walked away and I went back and drug him over, put his teeth on the curb and stomped him in the back of the head. He's a mean man. That wasn't the man I knew. You see, God can do miraculous things in your life. And he can change you. By faith, Sarah herself has received strength to conceive I'm in verse 11. And she bore a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. If God's promised you, church, he's going to deliver. Therefore, verse 12, from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude. We're a part of that. Innumerable as the sands which is by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the promise but having seen them afar off, they were assured of them and they embraced them, confessing that they were strangers and pilgrims in a land on the earth. For those who say such things. How many of you say that this morning? I'm looking for something afar off. I'm not looking just at what is here. I am looking at something that is afar off. The old song says, John tells of a city that he saw coming down where no heartache or sorrow will be known. And someday we can go there through God's marvelous grace and forever live in that heavenly home. I can almost see that city. I see them gathered all around the great white throne. With faith in my Savior and his wonderful love, I can almost see the lights of home. Great song. Church, we're looking beyond what's in this natural realm. Like Abraham and like those of faith, we're looking at something beyond here. And if you don't get your eyes fixed on that, your eyes will be fixed on the bowl of soup. And you can very easily give your inheritance away cheap. For those who say such things, that's you and I, we declare plainly that they seek a homeland. 
And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. Church, there's nothing there to go back to. I don't know what God delivered you from or if you've been delivered, but let me tell you something. Once God brings you up out of that muck and that mire, there is nothing back there to go to. Has God made a change in your life? God made a change in my life. I was raised in Christianity, but I went wild and I was into rock and roll and I was into drugs and stuff. And God got a hold of my life and really introduced himself to me and I got saved. Now today, I hate rock and roll. Give me that old time rock and roll. That music soothes my soul. Take me back to the days of old. No, God delivered me from that. There is nothing back there to go to. I'm looking for something. If you don't get your eyes fixed on that, he said, if they had had their mind on the country from whence they came, they would have had opportunity to go back. We need to get our eyes off of this world and get our eyes fixed on him. Amen? And nothing should matter more than him. We don't want to be the dog that goes back to his vomit or the sow back to her wallowing. Then verse 16, but now they desire a better. That is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Church, he's prepared a city for you too, amen? He's prepared a city for us all. How many of you believe that this morning? You really do believe that? Praise God. We don't want to be like the Edomites. I'm done yelling at you. How many of you really, really love Jesus? Come on, we need to love him more and more because I see, I see the Bible being unfolded right before our very eyes. Now, I'm not one that every time I turn around and something happens in the Middle East, I say, all right, Jesus is getting ready to come. No, he, he is getting ready to come. But he's going to do that on his timetable. I don't get real asphyxiated with when is it going to happen and how close is it and all that. I've been down that road I'm not saying that he's delaying his coming. I'm not a scoffer. What I'm saying is, it doesn't matter when he shows up, I want to be ready to meet him. The Bible says, when, when I return to the earth, will I find faith in the land? I want him to find it in me. I want him to find it in you. Well, the way he finds that is we commit ourselves to be faithful to him, to live holy. I pray that I don't get a report that so-and-so and so-and-so is over here doing this and that. And I'm thinking, dear Lord, did they hear what I was saying? How could they go to that? Amen. Wouldn't you be disappointed to hear the pastor be had an affair? How could he do something like that after all the things he preached? Wouldn't that be disappointing? Well, church, it's just as disappointing for me to hear some of you do things that you should not be doing because you're selling your birthright for a bowl of soup. I'm thinking, how could you do that? How could you do that knowing what you're giving up? Or do you know what you're giving up when you choose to do that? So this morning, I'm going to ask you if you'd bow your head, please. I said I was through yelling at you, and then I'll go yelling at you again. On a serious note, I don't try to pull on emotional strings, church. I don't. If you're going to commit your life to Christ, it's because it's a decision that you've made. I'm not going to work you up and push your emotional buttons to do that. You either want Jesus or you don't. 
do you want him? If you're here this morning, you've never trusted Jesus. Let me tell you something. I, I, I love you. I do. But I love you enough to tell you that hell is real and eternity is long. And you don't want to go there. And you don't have to go there because Jesus has made a way for you to be redeemed from that old life that's going to take you there. And all you got to do is cry out to him. Say, Lord, I want to give my life to you. I want to live my life for you. And let me tell you something. When you do that, that doesn't mean your life is going to be trouble-free. You're still going to have struggles, but you don't have to face it alone. And God will give you a peace that nothing else will give you if you'll make that choice. He'll give you joy that nothing else will give you if you'll make that choice. If you're not a Christian today, and you'd like to say, Pastor Bernie, I want to commit my life to Jesus today. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand, and I want to pray for you. Anybody in here that is not a follower of Christ, you say, Pastor, I want to commit my life to Christ today. I want to make heaven my home. All right, if you're here this morning, every head bowed. I, I, don't, I want to keep this private, just between God, me, and the person, all right? you're here this morning and you're, you're, you know you're not living your life the way you should you're either tempted to take the soup or you've already taken it you're disappointed in yourself come on I've been there I'm disappointed I'm ashamed of myself I shouldn't have done that and you want to say I, I, I want to recommit my life to God I'm starting fresh today is a brand new day that's the great thing about God he's the God of new beginnings you can start over today and say, Pastor, I'm not living like I should. And I want Jesus just to wash me clean today. I want to start all over again today. Would you just lift your hand? I want to pray for you. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to approach you and try to grill you, what you've been doing, all that. That's, I just want to pray for you. I'll see your hand. God bless you, sir. Anybody else? Anybody else? Hallelujah. Father, we come before your throne in Jesus' name. Lord, we thank you, oh God, that you are the builder and maker of the home we have inherited. And it's not of this world, Lord. God, we thank you for the things that you've given us here, Lord, and we want to be good stewards of them. But God, they're just temporal. They're all going to pass away, Lord. God, our eyes are fixed on something so much better. Lord, make it a reality to every believer, Lord, so that it is so precious and so dear to them that they want to hold on to you and they will not let you go until you bless them, Lord. God, we hold on you this morning, Lord. Bless us, O oh God. Bless us, O oh Lord. God, I pray that the body of Christ will be desperate for you like Jacob was desperate that night when he said, I will not let you go until you bless me. Help us to be desperate for you, Lord, to keep our eyes fixed on what's really important, God. Make us more like that than Esau, Lord. We pray, God, for Israel again today, God. We pray for what's going on in the Middle East. Lord, we know it's all a part of your plan, Lord. You are guiding all of that, Lord. And Father, we don't know how it's all gonna turn out, but you do. God, we know that you're in control. But in the meantime, you've instructed us, pray for peace in Israel, Lord, and we do. God, we pray that you help them, God. Give them victory, Lord. Help them to do what they do with excellence, God. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. The altar's open. If you have a need for prayer of any kind, we invite you to come as the worship team leads us.
in a song. Jesus in the darkness 
Father, we love you, Lord. May we go out from this place and be an effective witness for you, Jesus. Lord, help us to kill the dogs on our leashes, Lord. So that God, when those buttons are pushed, the old man doesn't show up. But the new man, which is in Christ Jesus, shows up, Lord. A soft answer turns away wrath, Lord. We turn the other cheek. And those things, God, it's hard to do, God. But Lord, we know that through Christ we can do it. So God, teach us, help us, Lord. Empower us, equip us, God. We ask in Jesus' name. Now, Father, I speak a blessing over the body of Christ today. Lord, as we depart, God, I I pray that every home, Lord, will be a refuge. God, it'll be an escape from the world and worldly things, Lord. God, may we not allow worldly things into our home, God. May it be a place for the Holy Spirit, a place where you'd be welcome. Lord, when people come into our homes, may they sense the very presence of God's Spirit there and know there's something different here, Lord, and it's your presence. And as a result of that, God, I just believe, Lord, if we will do that, then you will strengthen the relationship between husbands and their wives and parents and their children and siblings, one with each other. There'll be peace in the home. God, we long for that. We want peace and love in our homes. So fill it, God. Fill our homes with that, I pray. In Jesus' name, Lord, those that are searching for their mate, Lord, I pray that they find him. Bring their paths together, Lord. And God, if they're just content to serve you, Lord, then you be their mate, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. God bless you.